want to uh, do the honors and um, introduce the film? Well, sure. The movie we are going to discuss today is Color Out of Space, directed by Richard Stanley, based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Color Out of Space. Uh, this is Richard Stanley's first feature film in 23, 20, 25 years, something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like his return to form after his banishment from uh, filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little self-imposed. Little, um, you know, he made a couple. Of, he made Hardware, which is an interesting film. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit. Dust Devil, and then he had the true Hollywood experience of getting fired from a big budget movie, uh, The Island of Doctor Moreau, and yeah. disappeared. He made a few documentaries, but pretty much just done with the. Uh, with filmmaking as, as far as, the, uh, you know, as far as that goes. Yeah. And his whole plight with the production of, uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau is, uh, documented in the, uh, 2014 film lost soul, which is great. I know you've seen that too, cause we've talked about it. Yeah. It's really interesting how Val Kilmer basically like torpedoed, that movie for, for whatever reason, that's a fascinating documentary. You end up feeling pretty bad for Richard Stanley. Although I got a, did you ever see the, the finished product of what? Of the Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, you mean the theatrical release of that film? Yeah. 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 I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And, and you, also obviously, um, Marlon Brando is totally out of control in that film, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, it feels like, I I mean, you see this a lot with like, oh, this would have been great. You know, you watch that uh, documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune, and everyone's just talking about how great that movie would have been. But what it has, you know, like a really interesting filmmaker, David Lynch, made a Dune movie, and it stunk. And maybe, like, there's this tone of the Dr. Moreau documentary that, Oh, Richard Stanley would have made this brilliant film, but judging from what you see on screen, you're like, does any version of this would would it have been good? I mean, it, I guess it's hard to say, but I'm going to probably say no. I think. Uh, all right, I want to speak to the Dune uh, point that you brought up. That I don't think you can make a six ninety minute film on the novel Dune. I think that the only yeah. way you can tell that story is with like a series or like a mini series or something like that. And um, absolutely, you know, I'm I'm not even a big fan of Frank Herbert's. Like, I'm not a, I'm not one of those guys who's read all the Dune books. I read the first one and that was it. I kind of tapped out. What did you think about the book? Yeah, too much. There's like too fucking yeah. Like, it's like reading a goddamn thermodynamics tech book, textbook or something, you know? It's like too much shit, too many, like, you know, I, I for me, it was uh, over, it was self-indulgent, I thought, that book. And I think, and I haven't read any of the other ones. And granted, I think I was yeah. like 16 when I read it too. But I read all the Lord of the Rings film, uh, movie, um, I read all of the no- Lord of the Rings novels and the Silmarillion mm. prior to that. So I was accustomed to reading dense narrative and i thought that dune was like very self-indulgent and you know i I just was never compelled to read the rest of the books but i was Mm. interested in seeing the film and i I would go see a dune you know series i would watch that for sure 
But I think that sure. at the time that it was made, that David Lynch had the cards like stacked against him to make a good film with that, what, what he had to work with, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I tried, that's great. You made it through Dune. I tried to read it. I realized it got like 50 pages in and didn't retain one single thing that happened. Yeah. Like if someone just said, okay, uh, what, what just happened three pages ago? I don't know. So I was like, this is not for me. And a filmmaker I really love and admire has a Dune movie coming out this year. Denny Villeneuve, who uh, did the Blade Runner sequel, did Enemy, did uh, Prisoners. And I, he, he's someone I always look forward to what he's doing. And this kind of seems like, I don't know how interested I am in a two-hour Dune movie. Like you said, like, well, how can you really tell that story in, in two hours? I'm definitely going to see it for two reasons because I haven't given up on being able to digest Dune and maybe after seeing like a decent version of it on the film, you know, in a, in a film format, it'll inspire me to try to read the book again because I, I don't, I like challenges like that. You know what I mean? Cause like part sure. of, I, I never felt like I'm like, man, you know, what, what was, what, what was it me, you know, like that I couldn't get into it. Cause I generally love like, that seems like it's right up my alley, you know, but right. But anyway, I feel like well, uh, you know the, you know maybe Jodorowsky would have made a like a four hour film or something, and it would have been cool. I don't know. Yeah, hard hard to tell. And uh, speaking of dense writing, this movie we're about to talk about is based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, who has a pretty pretty dense way of writing himself. I, I, I would say. I, have you read the story, or are you a fan of Lovecraft? I love H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft nice. was. Um, one of the first few writers that really grabbed my imagination when I was a kid. I mean, it was, uh, I can tell you right now, it was like when I was like just getting into reading. Um, mm -hmm. It was J.R.R. So when you were Tolkien. like 35? Yeah, when I was 35 and I started, I learned how to read, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it was J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Robert E. Howard, the guy who wrote Conan and a bunch of other stuff. Through Robert E. Howard, I discovered H.P. Lovecraft because a lot of the uh, names of the gods and stuff from the Howard's books were part of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, universe that he created. And um, yeah, those three writers were huge impacts on me when I was a kid. And in, in addition, there's uh, Michael Moorcock, the, the British uh, writer who wrote you know, mm -hmm. El Elric and all this other stuff. And uh was a big influence on uh, Blue Oyster Cult and, you know, whatever. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So, you know, the the, I, the, uh, the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft thing, uh, weird fiction, you know, all that pulp stuff, that was like very much in my head when I was like a young kid. Yeah, I, I discovered Lovecraft through, my my mother was a big, Stephen, she read all like Stephen King and Dean Coots and, you know, kind of like the, you know, the airport writer kind of shit and but i discovered hp lovecraft through stephen king who who mentions him quite a bit and and he was little descriptions of his short stories and and things like that and i do remember reading color out of space on on tour I, I can't remember which one and thinking this was one of his better stories and someone's gonna make a movie of this and uh here we are apparently it's uh it was h one of hp's favorite stories too 
That's int- yeah, that's it. It, it. It's been a while, so it's not fresh in my head. I know there's a lot of differences from the movies and, and the story kind of just takes the overall plot and idea, but like changes a lot of things. I, I like, I remember, like, I thought it was, he had all sons. Yeah, he and, did. There, know, was no, there was no female. There was, uh, he had two sons. Um, the name of the family was, was correct. The Gardner family, but all their first names were different. I don't remember what the first names were, but they were like these very New England, like British English kind of like, you know, old timey names that everyone had in the book. And, right. Uh, Even the spelling of color is like the old English way. Yeah. With the U C O L U R. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And also the, uh, the duration of the story took place over, I think an entire year in the Lovecraft, uh, short story. Um, and it right. sort of yeah, expanded this- out beyond just the family and it, which they kind of hint at in the movie that it would, it's actually growing. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and that's a very, like, I've seen Lovecraft hits a lot of, like, at the end of the story, someone went through something that drives them to madness and has witnessed what will be the end of, of civilization as, as we know it. Uh, it's pretty common, I think, I think, in Lovecraft's writing. Yeah, one of, the, one of the really cool things about the film, though, is that I think that, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to, uh, to adapt... Lovecraft to film and um some some of it successful some of it uh successful in a different type of way than actually telling the stories like the Stuart Gordon films you know Dagan and um the reanimator from beyond uh are I would say inspired by Lovecraft and taken into a completely different direction that the filmmaker uh, it's more in line with his vision than the vision of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, right. Know, and there's, there's Dagan is... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say Dagan is, is more of an uh, uh, adaptation of The Shadow Over Innsmouth than who is in the story Dagan. Yeah. Um, which I, I, That's my favorite of the Stuart Gordon adaptations. I have a soft spot for that movie. I don't, it's, I don't know why, but I love it. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I, I love all three of those, and and I like Me Stuart too. Gordon in general. And I think, but they're not they're not like the story, though. You know what I mean? They're not exactly faithful to uh, Lovecraft's like vision. You know? Right. I totally agree with that. I would say John Carpenter made three very like Lovecraftian uh, films, but are not actually based on anything he's written. Oh yeah, well the thing, like you, totally, yeah. That's like, I mean, that's the what the comes thing, to mind right yeah. away. Yeah, I would say the thing, uh, the uh, Prince of Darkness, yep. and uh, of course, in the mouth of uh, of madness, I think is just most overly Lovecraftian uh, film, which is also probably my favorite John Carpenter movie. In the mouth of madness. Yeah, I love it. Love yeah, that one. Saw that in the theater when in high school. I uh, think probably his last great one too. I um, I think that. Color from Outer Space is, uh, you could say that that is the kind of precursor to all science fiction that has to do with like meteors hitting the planet Earth and and like giant like ants, like all those films from like the fifties where there's something like the Blob, like even the Blob, you could even say is a descendant of uh, Color from Outer Space. You know what I mean? Because there's like this. Uh, 
alien presence or something. You know what I mean? There's like that, that's kind of, um, that, that motif is something I think that didn't exist. Cause you got to remember like this, the story was written in 1927. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, uh, you know, science fiction at that time really wasn't on that page per se. You know, there wasn't a lot of this kind of, uh, I mean, there was the, the age of the pulps, you know, and amazing stories and, um, you know, all that sort of stuff was going on. And, uh, right. I think that this movie really is kind of the, the, the alpha of all this stuff. You know what I mean? It just is where it started really a lot of these types of stories. So things like, you know, the thing, um, you know, uh, Prince of Darkness, because in Prince of Darkness, it kind of touches on how the devil, you know, Satan is another sort of entity from a different dimension or something. And I think that concept is a very Lovecraftian concept where there's like all these ideas about religion and the supernatural are actually these kind of ultra science from different civilizations or different you know, dimensions and things like that, you know, cosmic sort of sure. entities. And, and they have this apocalyptic ending. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, there's like, uh, you know, the end of the, the world and, and also how humanity really doesn't uh, figure into any of the agendas of these entities. You know, they're just like, uh, you know, this kind of, sidebar of of their agenda you know they don't give a fuck at all about the human race or planet earth or anything they're just incidental to these alien beings you know and that's that, that's like a the kind of the takeaway i get from a lot of his writing is like that yeah absolutely that we're insignificant and uh you know lovecraft is a very fearful I guess if he was around today, people would call him problematic kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, he was afraid of like everything. He, he didn't like music. He uh, feared the ocean. He probably feared things coming from, from, from space. Um, but all of that comes, uh, he was uh, completely racist. All, all of his weird odd kicks and things uh, really come through in his writing. Like he had a distaste for music. Um, really just seems like if he was around today he'd be some basement dwelling like neck beard on like fortune or something probably yeah yeah but, but um, <laughs> yeah. There, i i saw at the um salem horror fest last year i, I went up to that and uh and um jacqueline and i went for a few days to the salem cool. horror festival and um and there was a uh a documentary about hp lovecraft that we watched and it was it kind of yeah. it was great man it was fucking amazing i'm probably going to try to find that yeah. on blu-ray or something and it's great it talks yeah. a lot about a, his sort of uh you know uh fear of the other you know like mm. and his racism and you know it's not you know it just kind of frames it in this way where he's this guy who just wanted to stay in one place and he was afraid of everyone and that's why he had these like uh fears of of immigrants and he lived in Brooklyn for a brief period with his Jewish wife <laughs> you know and yeah. and it was sort of submerged right. in this uh world where there was the other speaking strange languages and had bizarre well at least to him unfamiliar cultures and that fit yeah. directly into his uh you know sort of xenophobia 
you know. And late in life, he actually laments the fact that he didn't wasn't more worldly in his worldview, that he didn't accept other people. So there was a little bit of regret based on some of the information available sure. about him. So, you know, I mean, yeah, the guy definitely had some, you know, un- unsavory views, you know, and uh, similar to Von Trier, I think that he, uh, you know, who we're going to talk about later in his uh, yep. house that Jack built, he... Uh, you know, I, I don't think, I think that you can't throw away his art because you don't like the guy, you know what I mean? Sure, and that's a point I've made many, many times. Um, bad people can make great art. Yeah. And a lot of times, great art is made by kind of shitty people. You know, you're, you're a bad guy. and um, I'm a know, terrible, I'm a fucking and, terrible person. But, but like, I like, I, I'm a base god. But in general... <laughs> I like your music, even though you're a bad guy. So yeah, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. I always say the same thing about about you, and they're like, "What's it like doing a podcast with Mike?" I'm like, "Oh, he's a piece of shit," <laughs> but but he's great to talk about movies with. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Tunes and Tunes is awesome. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so here we are with uh, Color Out of Space. Um, I got some mixed feelings about this one, man. Okay, I want to hear um, what you have to say. Okay, well, I'll start with like I. Uh, it begins like a. I love the opening shot of the trees. Like I feel like we're about to watch like it has a very like Terrence Malick sort of feel to it. It's a shot of nature with this voiceover, and uh, you kind of go through the woods, and almost immediately one of the first problems in the movies arises for me. Um, Richard Stanley's handling of, of, of actors and the way they talk to each other is very stilted and unnatural in this movie. Like, I think the movie's beautifully shot. It's got a lot of interesting ideas. But anytime there's a scene of two people talking to each other, it feels really unnatural to me. And especially within the family, between um, the mother and Nicolas Cage and... Right off the bat, I got to point out, I think Nicolas Cage is in a completely different movie than the one Richard Stanley is is making. Like, did you get that at all? I mean, we talked about Nicolas Cage the last time about how a great director can really bring out a great performance. Mandy is a great performance. He's doing his crazy Nicolas Cage thing. But here he's doing this. I don't know what the fuck he's doing. Like... The first part of the movie, he's doing this. Oh, gee, shocked! Uh, I'm a good dad, and and and, and it's so goofy and and unnatural, almost like he's acting in a comedy. Yeah, and, I, I, uh, I had um, you know, one, one of my only criticisms of the film is some of the dialogue for sure, and uh, the directing of Nicolas Cage. I think could have been done. Uh, he could have given him a little bit more guidance as to like what the you know he's supposed to be doing in the film as uh you know nathan gardner you know it's mm. it's it's more of like well here's nicholas cage in this uh hp lovecraft film i didn't once it didn't feel like nathan gardner to me you know what i mean no it, exactly and you know it would seem to be like nicholas cage wanted to do this this seems something that's up his alley you know he's, he's into horror movies and comic books and stuff. It seems like something he wanted to do. So 
I don't think he was just phoning it in with it. I think he had some ideas that he wanted to bring to, to the table. And I think his instincts were completely wrong. Sort of like the Wicker Man remake, which is a yeah. project I know was close to his heart. And I've defended that movie in the past. I don't think it's nearly as awful as people say it, it think it is. There's some, some, some positives to it, but Nicolas Cage is the main problem in that movie. He's gone completely off the rails and doesn't know what movie he's in anymore. And I think he's doing a very similar thing here with this. I mean, that, that whole scene, of, oh, sorry about the smell. This meteor stinks. Like, he's just over, he's just overdoing it. It's so unnatural. And there's a lot of things I, I notice, even like, you know, the first 20 minutes of the movie that don't, you know, the daughter's a witch. It doesn't really, it doesn't really go anywhere. Well, um, I, 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 uh, I liked that because I, I like the fact, well, all right, number one. I agree with you 100% about Nick Cage. And I also yeah. uh, believe that some of the dialogue, like he may, maybe he needed some supplemental uh, script writing with the dialogue to help, all, help yeah. out with some of that stuff. Um, it seemed clunky, kind of unrealistic, you know. Uh, I feel like, w- once again, Lovecraft is like hard to adapt to film because in the books or in the stories, not a lot of action actually happens. It's all told like as like uh, flashbacks or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. Not, not a lot of dialogue between people either. Not a lot of dialogue. So a lot of dialogue has to be formulated if you're going to make a film out of a Lovecraft story. Uh, Now, with all that said, this film is a Richard Stanley film and it, yeah, but at the same time, it faithfully conveys the vibe of a Lovecraft story, in my opinion. And uh, but the 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 part of the film that is Richard Stanley is the occult and the witchcraft stuff, because that's very much part of what he is about. You know what I mean? That's like kind of oh big, yeah, you know, his chaos magic and you know all that kind of stuff and. You know, he kind of flexes his muscles a little bit with his knowledge when they talk about Gardnerian Wicca and like all this kind of stuff in the beginning, like when the surveyor rolls up on Lavinia, you know, you know, she's doing a ritual and I don't know. I just, I thought that part was kind of endearing that there was like a young girl who's into witchcraft and, you know, it was kind of like this like alternative, you know, cause that, that's kind of him, you know, that's his style, you know, and I thought it was cool that she's she's on the back of a horse with a cape, and I feel like Lavinia was actually Richard Stanley in the film. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, like I'm surprised she wasn't wearing a cowboy hat and a duster. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. like, exactly. If you notice in his like when I saw him in the documentary, I'm like, oh, this explains like you know Dylan McDermott wearing like the duster and exactly. Uh, you know, he looks like one of the characters in his film. So yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. Like, didn't have much to do with the movie, but. Yeah. That's fine. You know, there's this thing where the, the mayor comes to check out the meteor. No, no one seems, you know, at all shocked that something from space it came and landed in the farm. Everyone's very nonchalant about it. And then the, the, the mayor, I think it was, goes, oh, you, sold me that, you should have sold me this farm when I offered to buy it. Like, that goes nowhere. You think, is this character going to come back? It has something to do with the story. It really doesn't. And one of my other main problems with the movie was a lack of... Of, of, of rules like the meteor lands and some people start acting weird some people don't 
um, you know, what, you know what I mean? Well, it kind of hit everyone differently too, you know? And, uh, right. Like, and it affected all the, all the animals and the, you know, flora and stuff like that too. Yeah. The alpacas, which was, uh, (laughs) what? (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, there's a scene where the kids, like the, the parents have gone off to, to the hospital because the mother chopped her fingers off. Um, and so the kids are around this meteor a lot, but they seem to be relatively fine. But Nicolas Cage and the mother gets back after being away from the meteor for like a day, and he immediately starts acting like a madman. I, that struck me as really weird. And that's, again, another really turning point in Cage's performance where he completely acts with a different accent. Did you catch that? Oh yeah. Well, that, that, that's not the first time I've seen that in different films. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, uh, Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Port of call yeah. New Orleans where he's like all over the map with his accents, man. Yeah. But in, again, in that it worked like that movie is funny. I think it's supposed to be taken as satire. Here, like, I, I was like, I even wrote down, is, is, he, is he doing a Trump impression? <laughs> like, he gets back from the hospital, what's going on? He's he really, I, I laughed. Like, what the fuck? Is this an outtake? <laughs> it, it was such a bizarre um, choice, choice to make. That, that, that's kind of what, again, like, I was like the, another big derailment in the movie for me, which is right around the halfway point. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that stuff, definitely. Uh, however, um, the fact that everyone was affected differently, uh, I just kind of took that as, you know, certain pe- that's like part of maybe the psychology of the person too, you know? I mean, obviously mm. there, was yeah. like, there was some kind of thing going on. The mother is, uh, has cancer. Uh, there's like doubts. They're... They had just moved out to the country. They were like obviously uh, city people. Um, there was a uh, thing with uh, you know Nathan Gardner and his father about uh, not becoming his dad. You know that kind of thing. Right. There, there was a lot more life that the mother and father had. Li- you know that Nathan Gardner and uh, his wife, uh, I believe her name is uh, Teresa Gardner have lived than the kids. You know, the kids are just relatively, you know, 15, 16, 18, under 20 years, you know? Yeah. One, one of the kids was a, literally a kid, you know, it's like probably nine years old. Right. I just think, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I was re I read into that as being like this entity affecting people differently based on some of the internal stuff that might've been going on with them, you know? Right. I, I got that it just seemed like you didn't really get to know the family that well before everything starts happening. It's not like a huge, a ton of like development with, with, with the family. So maybe that's where my uh, confusion uh, of that stemmed from. But uh, yeah, there's just a lot of weird aesthetic choices. Like there's an alpaca milking scene. Uh, It's (laughs) slightly off-putting. Um, but there is a lot to like, this is very much, like I said, this is a Richard Stanley film. Like, I feel like if this came out in like 1990, 1989 or something like that, 
this would probably be revered as like some sort of classic. Yeah, like uh, this absolutely. exact movie. Yeah, you know, shot on film in the eighties or nineties. Like people would look at it the same way as they look at, uh, you know, Reanimator. Um, but made today, like you know, the filtered dialogue, some of the. Um, Actually, I was going to say cheapness of it, but I got to say, this movie looks really, really good. Yeah, I like, mean, I think it's stunning. I think a lot of it is, like, stunning, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of practical effects and digital effects, and they're not the best, but it doesn't completely take you out of the movie. Like, you have that alpaca monster somewhere towards the end that looks, like, sort of out of the thing, or even the void. Uh, yeah. Well, both all both of those uh, references are, are true, in my opinion. Yeah, right. So there's a lot to um, admire uh, about the movie. I, I like the music a lot. The score was amazing. Uh, I thought, yeah. Colin Cutson, I believe his name was. Um, yeah, this doesn't feel like a guy who's been away from the game for 25 years. This is. Aside from performance issues, it, it's confidently made and it looks beautiful. You see, like the the, the meteor changing the color of everything, ch- changing the animals. It all looks really good, and I love the sort of manicness of the ending that lasts, you know, fifteen minutes or so, where it just goes completely crazy. Um. I thought it was great. It had a great energy to it. And uh, that final shot of the big hammer going up and you see the title of the movie uh, across, I thought that was a really just perfect ending. Yeah, and, and so, the the ending, to me, I don't know, it was weird. It was like I, I got super choked up at the ending because of the monologue of, uh, I believe the character's name was Ward, who was the surveyor. And um, mm-hmm. in the story, he was uh, unnamed. Like, there was no name associated with the, the narrator in the story. And uh, the beauty of H.P., the way H.P. Lovecraft uses language and the way that that monologue at the end, like, it was essentially the same final paragraphs of the story. Uh, it's really, it got very emotional for me, man, because, like, I was just, like, I'd watched this, what I thought right. was a great film. You know, and it made me uh, very feel like a, a, I felt something. You know what I mean? I thought it was great. Like the ending just captured it. You know. Sure, and uh, I gotta point out the uh, the um, mother son creature as being one. Of, oh man! One of the most unsettling things I've seen in a film. The mother son sort of body horror creature thing. That's up there. It, oh <laughs> yeah! One of the most. Disturbing things I've seen in a movie in a long time. Equal equal to the visual of the mother son hybrid was the the sound like those wails. It was like really hard to watch that scene, and I felt like when's it gonna end, man? I wanted I wanted to go in there and kill that fucking thing so it just stopped wailing, you know? Yeah, yeah, and then when finally he puts him out of the misery, it's just really bad moment and then like you don't expect the movie to have like the emotional weight that it has yeah you know that's uh but you know that was that was a really good use of uh cgi and practical and um 
Yeah, I don't know. It was cool. But overall, like, is this like a movie you would you would recommend to people? Like, would you give it like a passing grade? I mean, you seem to like it a little bit more than I did. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. I look past the uh, shortcomings because uh, I'm just a fanboy. Like, I'm, I'm totally, I mean, I admit it. I'm a fanboy of Richard Stanley's, and I'm also an H.P. Lovecraft enthusiast. And uh, Hardware and Dust Devil also have some shortcomings, too. But I love both of those films as well. So I, I give it... Like, yeah, Hardware is an, an interesting one. Because there's like a lot... Like, it's a big world that he's sort of hinting at. And he tells this very small story of a of a girl being stalked by a robot and a creepy fucking neighbor. Yeah. I think that um, uh, I would like to see a sequel to Hardware, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's so much you can do with that post-apocalyptic, you know, cyberpunk, I believe was a word people were using around that time. You know, the yeah, 90s. Probably, yeah. The 1990. Um, there's a lot you can do with that world. And uh, it's too bad they kind of killed off the... Uh, the uh, you know one of the main characters i'd like to see more adventures of dylan mcdermott in a duster well <laughs> and um but the mark five i mean that that there could be more of those robots out there that's the thing you know right yeah and uh you know richard stanley has kind of mentioned uh a lovecraft shared universe now like shared universe or is a term that's really gotten old with me. Everyone's trying to do that after the success of the Avengers. Everything's trying to be the shared universe. And uh, they tried to do that with the Universal Monsters yeah, with uh, that Tom Cruise movie, The Mummy, which I guess I didn't see, but by all accounts, it was an abysmal piece of shit. And when you try to jumpstart a franchise before it's even begun, you know, that's a problem. You don't know how people are going to react. That said, I wouldn't mind more Lovecraft, adap Lovecraft adaptations. They don't necessarily need to exist in this in this world uh, of this movie, but I think more Lovecraft, more Richard Stanley, I, I would say that's a good thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, even, I mean, even within uh, Lovecraft's uh, canon of of work, you know, there's like Cthulhu and uh, you know the old ones, like all this. He has his own universe just integral to his stories that I think, you know, you could make. It doesn't have to be like, like the Avengers where there's like supervillains or whatever, but it could be uh, a common mythology that laces all the movies together, you know? Right. Absolutely. And it, it, it's a tough sell, you know? Uh, I don't know if you remember like five years ago, uh, Guillermo del Toro was setting up um, the Mountains of Madness with James Cameron producing and Tom Cruise starring, and uh, couldn't get that off the ground. Nah, and that's I mean, like that would have been terrible. Those are three though. really. You think so? Yeah, I don't, I, Tom Cruise, man. I don't know, man. You know, it's like. Well, you got to look at who's behind the camera. Guillermo del Toro, obviously, a big fan of Lovecraft. I think he would do the story justice and Tom Cruise clearly wanted to make that kind of movie because he, you know, went ahead and made the mummy right. a couple of years after. But yeah, I get, again, there's no telling like, like what all the, like, uh, 
maybe it would have been great. Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe Tom Cruise would want to be jumping out of helicopters and shit. Yeah, maybe they would have make it more of an action. They'd have a helicopter in the movie where he could, you know, do some like uh, stunts or something like that. Yeah, he, he could throw like uh, a Dianetic out at people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think Lovecraft stuff is always open uh, to interpretation. It's tricky, but it can be done right. I mean, there is definitely parts of uh, Color Out of Space that were very Lovecraftian. Yeah. And uh yeah, I'd like to see to see more and I hope it's not twenty five years before Richard Stanley makes another movie and uh, I hope the next movie he makes has a guy with a duster and a cowboy hat. Well yeah, man. I mean there's there's a guy uh like that that's like his you know, like I said, in in hardware, the beginning. That's that was <laughs> Carl McCoy from Fields of the Nephilim, the guy who walked across the desert, you know, and found the Mark V robot. You know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nods to like music, uh, like uh, from our like, you know, shit we like. You know, yeah. there's uh, Motorhead. There's uh, Public Image Limited. Yep. Iggy, uh, Iggy really Pop's cool. voice is in it. Iggy Pop. Yeah, it's a cool, weird little movie. I don't think many people know it exists. Yeah, well, people got to go. We should do the next thing we do. We should do a retrospective on Stanley's uh, work. I think that'd be cool to cut get back into those uh, those other two films as well. But uh, sure, I mean, I could talk about that creepy neighbor guy for like an hour. Yeah, and Richard Stanley, it's he has like a relationship with Fields of the Nephilim because he's um done uh, several of their music videos, and like I said, he had Carl McCoy uh, act in the opening scene of uh hardware and uh right and he looks like richard stanley himself looks like a member of fields of the nephilim with his duster and hat and everything you know yeah he's a uh, south african right yeah south africa yep but right they're like raised in london or something because i remember like watching that documentary like he had like a, a kind of a strange accent didn't like wasn't yeah. quite like completely british yeah, it's a South African uh, kind of thing, and uh, I guess I guess he yeah. lives in France now. I think. You there? Yeah, I'm still here. He lives in France, I believe. Say that again. Sorry. I guess he lives in France now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know where they filmed *Color Out of Space*? That's a good question that I don't have the answer to, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me neither. I'm sure I could look it up, but yeah. um, again, it, it, it had to be somewhere. It's probably like at, uh, Georgia, since that's where everything's filmed nowadays. Yeah, I think you know that some somehow I think you're right about that. So, right. But so anyway, okay, overall, um, like final. Yeah, was, I, I give it a five out of five because that's just me, and I understand if someone else would give it less than that, but you know, I would go. I thought a lot about it. I would go two and a half Ooh, really? out of okay. five, maybe, maybe three with another viewing. Um, like I said, there's a lot to like, but there, there, there was just, like I said, that the acting was kind of bad and it just didn't completely work for me. That said, I think I would recommend that people watch it because it feels like it's going to be divisive. And and we'll get people talking. This is going to be a movie people like want to debate. I would think because I think people are going to feel strongly about it on either side. I just kind of fell in the middle. 
It, yeah. It's very, it's an interesting movie, but it just didn't completely work for me. I think you put a different actor as the father, maybe even like Dylan McDermott, you know, he would have been a yeah, good choice. Actually, that's a good um, point. Yeah. And I think, I think I would give it a higher rating. There's still some, you know, weird interact. The way people interact is a little stilted, even without Nicolas Cage. But I think it's it's worth seeing. It just just wasn't the home run I was was hoping for. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw uh, the house that Jack built. Man, I was totally fucking blown away by it. Yeah, you liked it, huh? I loved it, man. I thought it was great. Watched I had a twice. feeling you would. Is that just... Wow. Yeah. Same day or different days? Back-to-back days. One day, and then I rewatch nice. it the second day. That's, uh, yeah. Um, we talked about it a little bit on, uh, on the last podcast, and I was truly surprised you hadn't seen it, because that is just, like, right up your alley. It, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like I avoided it. It just was one of those things that just um, I I like never got around to seeing it. And then other movies come out, and you know, and then it just I I had always intended to see it, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Did you see the director's cut or yes. the regular cut? I saw oh, the, the director's, director's cut. cut. I'm not sure what the differences are. I've only seen like the regular cut. I've read some some comparisons. And I guess like the, I think it's the fifth murder is a little bit more where he murders his girlfriend. I think it's more uh, brutal. I read. There's there's a lot of stuff that and, went on in that scene that was like very brutal. Aside from the actual murder, I thought. Right. Um, I, I mean, that, that was difficult to watch in the regular cut. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle more of that, but I think I'll eventually get around to seeing it. Yeah. For sure. Um. Yeah, it's a really interesting film, the structure of it. And when you think it's gone on too long, you get to this amazing epilogue that takes place in hell. Yeah, it's fucking amazing, man. Love it. It was, and it's really, he goes like full-on Lars von Trier in those moments. And I love that he's kind of talking to someone throughout the entire movie. You're not sure her, sure who. And the end, it ends up being what the, the, the devil or well, it's uh, we can talk about a guide to hell. It's uh, Virgil from uh, Dante's Inferno. Oh, see, yeah. I'm an idiot. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, you got, you <laughs> That's read right, some, his name is Virgil. You got to read some books, man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, they made a book out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, like. It's 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 a unique uh, structure. It's a it's a brutal film to get get through, but it's definitely rewarding, and it's got so many of Lars von Trier's hallmarks. Like it's shockingly violent and upsetting, but up against this kind of comedic aspect, like there's a little bit of humor to to, to the whole thing. Yeah, it's like darkly humorous, definitely, and it's uh, there's a lot of satirical like stuff because I'm. Um, I've watched like a bunch of uh, interviews with Von Trier and uh, he talks about his fascination. He's never been to the United States. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah, he's terrified of, yeah, he's terrified of flying. Yeah. And, and uh, I believe he made a couple of films critical of, of the United States. Well, I even think this one is because uh, there's a, um, a lot of uh, discussion about how Jack is like an allegory for Donald Trump and 
especially in light of hmm. the impeachment hearings uh, where Trump basically is daring our legal system to prosecute him and they just won't. <laughs> they find a way not to fuck this guy over. The same way Jack right. is daring the police to like arrest him, you know? And there's this like uh, boorishness that he has that's very similar to Donald Trump. And like, you know, in, in that fifth murder with his girlfriend, he goes down and he's like yelling at the cop, you know, and the girlfriend is like saying, this guy's after me, he's going to kill me. And he's like, everything this woman says is true. <laughs> and it's like basically, you know, Donald Trump is saying that all the shit that you guys say about me is true. So fucking do something about it. And our system is such a fucking mess that no one can actually do anything about it or no one has the balls to like stand up and fucking stand up for what's right in this country, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, apparently Mitt Romney is the only Republican uh, who, who's sane right now and wanting to do the right thing. But. Yeah, there's a lot of like daring in this. Like, if you look at like the first murder, like Uma Thurman daring him to kill her, basically. Yeah, it's really like again upsetting and and funny. The the one that sticks out to me is is, is the second murder as as the most comical in a way. Yeah, where it showing showing his obsessive compulsive disorder, how he gets in the car and he's like imagining blood. <laughs> Yeah, like behind the painting, and then he basically dares the cop to catch him. Like, I want you to check every inch of this room. <laughs> yeah, and, and the cop doesn't even question like, why is this guy here? Like, it, it almost seems dreamlike. And then that that whole scene ends with him dragging this corpse through the city behind his van, and it's it's funny. And then the rain comes and washes it away. You know, right. and, and once again, it's the whole fucking Trump allegory where it's like, you know, Trump's going out there doing like you know, horrible, evil things and someone washes it away and makes him, you know, squeaky clean in the eyes of the public. And it's, you know, it's, it's pretty when you think of it that way. And I'm not one of these. I mean, I hate Donald Trump and I'm not one of these guys who's like looking every you know possible place to, you know find things but you don't have to look very hard and i think this movie on some level operates as an allegory for not you know the the united states in this last four years of uh of its political life you know that's a really interesting this movie came out in 2017 right so donald trump would have just been elected yeah it's like yeah that doesn't doesn't seem like a yeah that, that doesn't seem like a far fetched theory at all i mean i certainly didn't get that out of it but that's really interesting i don't um, know if it's true or not that's just like what i see maybe as like because like there's so many levels to this movie you know and then there's also just von trier kind of trolling his his critics too you know everyone's like that's what i got out of it for sure yeah and it's great i love it you know too. i love it when he's like talking about great art and he's showing clips from stuff he's done in the past (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's scenes from uh, *Nymphomaniac* and you know other films. It's, it's great. And yeah, also, *Nymphomaniac* did not, nothing for me, but yeah. I'm, I I didn't like that one either. It was it, it was like very self indulgent. Um, I really liked uh, *Melancholia*. I thought that was great. Uh, *Antichrist*. Mm. I really enjoyed, and like his older films too from the '90s. I really liked too. 
The one I was thinking about specifically that was like a comment on America, the one with Nicole Kidman. Oh, um, uh, dog, dog, uh, yeah, dog, dog. or something. I can't, God, I can't remember. Yeah, that one. I really hated that. That that was one of the few films I, I couldn't make it through. Like I shut off halfway through. That I, was the one that was like just, a play almost, right? Right. Yeah, and like yeah. everyone's standing like there's chalk uh, to mark where things are. It was. It, it didn't do anything for me. I could appreciate that he was either trying to do something different or trolling everyone. But yeah, it did nothing for me. I thought he hit like a kind of a a new uh, stride with, with with Antichrist, and you just kind of see this like new phase of his career. Like every film he's made since then has similarities to it as far as style and tone. Like even like Nymphomaniac feels like a horror movie to me. Yeah, it does. It's like you know, it's very, it's like an extreme film, you know, and and uh, oh. even though like there's no like supernatural elements in it, there's a uh, extremity to it that. You know, even like a lot of those French extreme films aren't don't really have like a supernatural element to it, but there's just like crazy shit that goes on that is horrific. Hence, it becomes part of like the horror film genre, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I, you could say all of his films seem like an allegory for something. Like, I remember my first time through Antichrist, it felt to me like a movie just about the depression and didn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but th that's what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And, uh, but yeah, the vibe of that movie and there's the scenes and the feeling you get when you watch that film was, and you know, just the performances and the fact that it was essentially just Willem Dafoe and, uh, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Ginsburg. Gainsbourg. Yeah. yeah the, the French yeah. Uh, pop singer. Yeah. And actress. Is she a pop singer? Oh yeah, she's got like uh, a whole bunch of records out, man. I, I, her music's really cool. I like I like her music, you know. Oh wow, see, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, see, over here in the states, we only know her as an actress, <laughs> but in Europe, she's uh, a famous singer. That's interesting, and the role she chooses to take—I mean, it, it, it's pretty daring. I mean, I know there's supposedly like uh, there's porn doubles for all the sex scenes, but they're still superimposing her face over it so it looks real and if you're not in the know you're gonna you're gonna think it's real <laughs> I, I i would like to think that it actually was charlotte gainsbourg that performed all the x-rated scenes but um you know you just it blew. seems like it, it is isn't it <laughs> you just ruined like, my fantasy about that <laughs> <laughs> no i mean like i've read articles about oh we digitally impose we can just you know stunt double or sex doubles or whatever and and we superimposed her face over it, but I was like, that is pretty convincing. Because <laughs> yeah. you watch, you watch the Irishman. That shit isn't that convincing, and they had a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That was, so, uh, you know, so maybe it was Charlotte Gainsbourg doing all that stuff. I mean, I'd like to think maybe that, we, but, you know, we'll never know. I yeah. guess <laughs> unless one of us talks to Lars von Trier directly, <laughs> which could happen. It could happen. Hey, it's more likely that you will than I will, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doubtful but yeah maybe i'll run into him uh out here he'll, he'll decide he's not afraid of flying anymore and i'll run into him at whole foods <laughs> at whole foods <laughs> that, <laughs> that movie was, uh, thing people do that movie was shot in sweden i think the uh the house that jack built and um it's funny because when i was watching it i was thinking to myself this looks like europe 
you know? Like, there's something about it. Like Did that, you really? Yeah, the van. The van looks like a European van. Uh, I thought the, I don't know, just the countryside looked like a European countryside to me. And it turns out that it was shot in Sweden. And I believe that uh, the site where his house was supposed to be, because they mentioned Mount St. Helens. So I was assuming that mm. it was supposed to be in Washington State somewhere. Right. I thought it was Oregon, but yeah, yeah, um, I could be wrong. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because watching this, I felt like they, it, it felt authentic. This felt like it could be like some small town in, in Oregon. And I know that it was filmed in Europe, but it really, I found it very convincing. It reminded me, I started to think about the movie uh, The Ghost Rider by Roman Polanski. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I haven't seen that. It's great. But it really looks like small town Massachusetts. They nailed it. And you know it wasn't filmed there, obviously, because Roman Polanski uh, can't come into the United States. Right, right. So that, that, that just popped into my head. Like, oh, it's, it's pretty convincing. Because a lot of times when you don't film on location, you can tell. Like, one of the things that bugged me about The Departed was it was filmed in New York. And if you lived in Boston, you can tell a lot it's not boston yeah well there's a there's a specific scene that actually is in the neighborhood i used to live in there's the scene in the in the um the grocery store where uh leonardo dicaprio beats up those uh, guys from providence the oh uh, right yeah. yeah the exterior is a place that's actually in greenpoint and uh or well you know, greenpoint williamsburg like where it's in this uh right that that borderland between Williamsburg and Greenpoint, right by McCarran Park, and uh, it used to actually. I'm not sure what it is now because uh, I don't live in that neighborhood anymore. But uh, it used to be right. this restaurant that had this kind of like old school, uh, old timey like look on the outside, and uh, that that grocery store. The interior is definitely different, but the exterior was this place by the park. And uh, yeah, I know hmm. it's all shot in New York, except for some of the scenes do look like uh, long the Long Wharf area in downtown Boston. So I don't know, maybe they filmed some. Yeah, they there. did. They did a couple. They did do a, a, a couple shots like exteriors in Boston, but only a couple. It, it always irked me. I always thought those were really odd choice, but otherwise, that's a great movie. But. Anyway, back to my original point, uh, House of Jackville was pretty convincing. It looked American to me. It's interesting we got something completely different out of it. Yeah. I don't know. It just looked like one of those places that you drive through on tour in like the nor in like Northern Europe, you know? And uh, I guess parts of, parts of Washington remind me of the same thing, too. So it was a good, you know, stand-in for Washington State, Oregon, you know, Eastern, uh, Western, the Northwest, the uh, Pacific Northwest. Sure, sure. Um, let's talk about Matt Dillon. I mean, this guy's been acting forever. It seems like the the best I've seen him in, in forever. Yeah, I agree, man. And and uh, it made me think about how, I mean, I guess it's probably a choice of his why he's not acting in more films. But, I mean, I think he's one of, like, he definitely defined himself as a great actor in this film. And, I, and it made me think, man, I'd like to see more of Matt Dillon. But I don't know if I want to see him acting in any blockbuster films or anything, but if he just was more active in these kind of artsy films, I'd love to see that. Right. The last thing I remember seeing him was some awful TV show 
uh, it was kind of spooky and night Shyamalan-ish. Uh, I can't remember the news, but it was, it was pretty bad. And uh, it was good to see him pop up in this and, and give this performance. I mean, it, it's pretty... This seems like a, a role like 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 a more popular actor's agent would tell them not to take. Yeah, absolutely. Something that might ruin your career doing this this role. Right. But he is just like, he, he's spot on in this. Yeah, I thought he did a great job, and all, and like you were saying, in this in this climate, um, you know that a, a role like that, you know, because people don't know how to differentiate uh, art from reality, uh, might stigmatize him in the eyes of certain people, you know. And I'm sure this movie took, was like a huge, you know, there was like a big uproar, I imagine, with the uh, you know blog blogging, uh, you know, Cheeto finger bloggers out there. <laughs> probably well, had. It, it, yeah. They probably it's, had a lot to say about has, this film, you know. Oh, sure. Well, it has 57% on Rotten Tomatoes, so pretty split down the middle about what people thought about it. And, you know, it got you see a lot of, like, really the negative reviews tend to um, be very negative. Like, why do you need to make this kind of movie and this kind of client, climate? And uh, I think that's why Lars von Trier does make the kind of movies he makes, because he wants to give people the middle finger. I think that the fact that people even ask a question like that is fucking stupid. Like, why do you need to make a film like this in this climate? It's like, well, why does anyone need to do anything? Because it's inside them. And, you know, these these people out there who are writing in their blogs, you know, about all these these films and being offended. And first of all, I'm going to say that it's all virtue signaling. It's all like, well, look at me. Look how look how like progressive and quote unquote woke I am because I hate this movie. Right. So it makes me elevated somehow. But the bottom line is like everyone's different. People have like a dark side, man. And it's like you have to express that just as much as you expect all the bunnies and feel good movies and female empowerment films out there. There has to be something else to compare that to you know what i mean otherwise it there'd sure. be like nothing you know i mean there'd be a void of just one particular thing i feel like there should be room for everything to exist even this you know even like something that i doesn't interest me at all or like i finally roll my eyes at it's not it's not for me but it's for someone else and it should exist and anytime yeah. you think you start to say things like, like you just said, like, Oh, this doesn't belong in this climate or like, you know, you need to like a studio will make a director remove a scene from their movie because it's, it, it'll remind people of the shooting that happened last week, you know, things like that, 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 that sort of censoring is like that people can't handle, uh, you know, fiction. Yeah. And, and I think it's a disservice to people because I think that, uh, if you're so fucking weak-willed that you that a that a piece of art will will offend you and damage you, damage your psyche, you know I think that you deserve to be fucking damaged. You know what I mean? Because you need to like build up resistance. <laughs> you need to like experience things. You need to go out there and condition yourself to stuff. You know what I mean? It's like. Sure. Or, or you could just run away and hide and pretend things don't exist. And I think that's what like right. intense extreme films are exercising that part of our reality. You know, it's like uh, all horrible things exist in the world, you know, and, and art reflects that, too. And, you know, 
just because you you choose to work within a medium that that expresses that doesn't mean that you share those viewpoints you're just making a commentary you're illustrating that these things exist absolutely and uh yeah i mean even take away any sort of political agenda i can really see how someone wouldn't like this this is a tough yeah this is no, a tough totally. watch and it's long just like like martyrs um just I, it's not for me. I didn't enjoy watching it at all. Too much yeah. for me. Yeah, fair enough. So, I can, I, yeah, I can see how this movie might be too much. Um, two scenes in particular, oddly enough, with all the carnage with with human, the scene where he cuts the, the duckling's feet off yeah. was, was deeply upsetting to me. I agree. And I think that would be like the tipping point for a, a lot of people, uh, who watch this, even after you've already seen a few people murdered like that, that's just, you know, really upset. Yeah. And, and even you, as a child, this, you, you kind of hit the nail sorry, on the ahead. head with uh, the fact that, you know, if it's not to your taste, you know, like you said, martyrs wasn't to your taste and that's fair. That's a totally valid opinion. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you your agenda should supersede everyone else's agenda and tell them that they can't be into that either. You know, I mean, there's a lot of horrible music out there that I don't like. But if someone's telling me that I have to like, you know, Usher or something like that or, you know, fucking Run the Jewels or some shit like that, then uh, <laughs> then uh, I, I would be offended by that, that you have to listen to Run the Jewels, you know. And um, I know Well, Mike, a, you yeah. do. <laughs> but I don't want to, man. I don't want to listen to that kind of stuff. You know? I actually really like that. No, I know. That's a band that a lot of people like, but I fucking can't stand. So whatever. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And that doesn't make me racist. It doesn't make me uh, a misogynist. It doesn't make me anything but a guy who doesn't particularly like that band. And that's uh, totally fine, at least in the world that I yeah. inhabit. I noticed like critics, more lately um, seem to be driven by an agenda more than just reviewing what they see. And I understand you, you, you put your own thoughts and, and, and opinions and ideologies into what you're watching. But then there's this element that like, you're wrong. If you like it, like the whole thing about the Joker, like it became like a joke. Oh, you like that movie. Oh, you must fucking work out in your basement all the time. Or like, I do. Dark, I do right? those you know, things. Was- yeah. I, I lift weights. Yeah, I like I like watch the Joker. I lift weights. I eat meat, and I practice how to beat people up every day. So yeah, I guess I do fit the uh, the toxic male um, vibe. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing I want I point the other upsetting part of the movie that I think people might think is is too much is uh I is it the third or fourth murder where he kills his is um the girl he's dating and her two children yeah that's uh yeah that that you know it's funny i had this talk the uh the scene with riley keogh uh was was brutal you know uh, mm, yeah that, that was hard but to watch i found it really disturbing when he killed the family and mutilated grumpy the the, the child <laughs> like that that was and, the and part. And the part is so funny. 
it's funny, but like with the kids smiling like grotesquely. Yeah. Ugh. Like the voiceover, if you if you took the voiceover out, it would be almost unwatchable. I think how intense and brutal right. that scene is. But with the voiceover, it adds an element of humor to it, which enables you to actually watch the watch the scene. You know, and uh, right. But that once again. Not for everybody. I understand it if you don't want to watch something like that, and I'm not going to criticize you. I'm uh, going to question some of the things about myself that draw me to these <laughs> things. But sure. you know, I mean, it, it's part of the fucking continuum of reality that we live in. You know, you you have these things and you have other things, and it's not for everyone. But that that scene, that that particular segment of the film, really really disturbed me like and later i kept thinking about it and it was fucking heavy you know yeah absolutely and uh you know it, it's one of the reasons i put this in my top 10 uh of the decade because it really got a, a reaction out of me like when i was done watching it that's pretty much all i was thinking about yeah for the rest of for the next few days and what really set it over the edge is you know, after two hours of this insanity, it kind of dips into surrealism with this epilogue in, in, in hell. Like, you assume, like, the cops shot him down or whatever. It's not shown. It's just sort of implied. And then you think the movie is like, okay, maybe a few minutes left, but it goes on for another half hour. You see this journey deep, deep into hell. And at the end, he tries to escape and to no avail, you know, he's just gone deeper into hell, who knows? But, and all of that is, then it ends with Hit the Road Jack, <laughs> this fucking goofy, upbeat song. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, oh, I think man. that, I think that, uh, you know, I, I like the lit the connection in the, the literature with, uh, you know, it's, it turns into Dante's Inferno where Virgil, the Roman poet um, leads Jack on his own adventure in through the nine circles of hell. You know, I mean, they don't, they skip all the, you know, gluttony and, you know, they just right. uh, sort of uh, summarize his descent. And there's a scene where um, he sees like heaven, you know, Elysium, the Elysian fields. And, uh, Virgil is like that we don't have access to that and then you see mm. the regret in Jack's face where he's like oh man I was like going wild my entire life and now it's not going to turn out so well for me now it's time to pay the piper now it's time to get your, your real comeuppance so right yeah then he's like has all this sort of ego and bravado where like Virgil brings him to that bridge and he's like on the other side is a pathway that's out of out of hell and up as he put it and then jack's like well let me, let me try my uh my hand at this let me see if i can navigate this pit and he ends up uh falling into the abyss and uh you know it's that 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 scene is like sort of like well there's consequences yeah. to your action man and i think that Despite all the depravity in the movie, that scene kind of brings it full circle to this kind of uh, moral play that, well, 
if you want to run wild, you know, you got to, uh, you're, you're, there's consequences to everything that you do. And in Jack's case, there's consequences to a life of murder and, you know, brutality is that he gets to spend eternity either falling through this black abyss or roasting in this inferno, you know? Right. And like, even in death, his, his, his hubris, there's no boundaries. He thinks he can, I'll just give it a shot. Like you said, I can, I can do this and right. He's um, bound to a, a horrible eternity. And um, it's a powerful ending. You know, I mean, I didn't do a belief, but sorry for Jack at the end. He, he got what he deserved. Yeah. You know, and it, and it's, uh, yeah, you know, I think that for Von Trier, you know, to make a film like that and have an ending that have it end that way is, uh, sort of just like showing the ignorance of his, uh, detractors in some ways. He's like, all right, look, you know, guys, this is, I'm going to spell it out in bold black and white. And if you're too much of a fucking idiot to see that what I'm saying, then you're lost. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, sure. You do these things. There's consequences. Most likely you're going to go to hell. And that's kind of how I, you know, that's what I think is, I think his message was that, you know, and that's why I love the film, man. It, had I seen it in that, within the decade, this would have been my number one too, Jeff. So I, I oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause I, I like well, all really, the literary really stuff. Glad you liked it. Yeah. I like all the literary tie-ins. I like, I like the, um, the philosophical angle. I like the, uh, the, the allegories, you know, and all the symbolism and, and all, and of course, just like the, the fine production of it and the expert, uh, craftsmanship that Von Trier has as a filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you hated the movie, you could appreciate it on, on a technical level. This is one of the, I think it might be his best directorial effort for sure. Yeah, man. And, and it comes together really well. And again, it's two and a half hours long. It's a brutal watch. But I went back and, and watched it again when I was trying to think of my 10 best of, of, of the decade. And um, it, it was a tough watch the second time around. But if it was just like nihilism, this would be a garbage movie. But it's so much more than that. Yeah, you know, and sadly, people don't see past that, and they just think that, well, it's a study in depravity and nihilism, so I'm going to dismiss it as an exploitation film or something like that, you know what I mean? And that, that sucks, you know? Yeah, you saw a lot of that with, with, with Joker as well. Like, this is just exercise in nihilism and male rage when, you know, I, I, I saw a little bit more to it than that. Since since our last talk, I went out and watched a bunch of uh, films that I hadn't seen that were on your top ten list there. So uh, one of them was Enemy, which was outstanding, I thought. Uh, great movie. Honeymoon, which was great, and uh, featured the dude who played uh, Victor Frankenstein in um, uh, Penny Dreadfuls, the series on Showtime, which I really dug. And wow. that redheaded lady who was in Game of Thrones, who played one of the Wildings, so uh, that was a that was a plus. That movie was great; had a well, very kind of downer ending, and was also uh, yeah. a little bit of a Lovecraftian kind of film too. Sure, yeah, this sort of outside influence 
you know, yeah. comes from what, maybe from outer space. Exactly. They never really, uh, uh, you know, define it, you know. Right. And it just kind of completely transforms this, this person. I, I Yeah, I, I love Honeymoon. Um, I love that it was a small scale. Uh, you know, this woman is overtaken by this thing. And it's not this generic horror movie where he uh, has to track down something to save her and stop the bad guys. It's bad things happen and then it's over. Yeah, basically. And uh, that is uh, that's a hallmark of, of, of great horror. Yeah. Um, glad you liked it. I feel kind of guilty because I didn't watch anything. <laughs> no, no, that I, didn't see I didn't expect you to. But, uh, but yeah, that movie was great. And, uh, but the, the real crowning uh film which you know like it would this would have been uh you know i i didn't catch this the first time in within the within the time period but yeah was the house that jack built i thought that was you know fucking amazing yeah absolutely uh i said it last time but like um that that that's a a movie i would have expected that you've seen multiple times Thanks for tuning in, guys. As usual, it's a great time hanging out with Jeff, talking about movies. We're going to be doing these things from time to time, hopefully on a more or less regular basis. So uh, really enjoy this. Hope you guys enjoy it. And I'll see you all next time. Take care.